Hey, this is James, the showrunner here at Self-Evident. Before we start the show, I just wanted to remind you that we are running our annual listener drive. And right now, thanks to one of our incredibly generous listeners, every time you make a tax-deductible donation, that donation will be doubled dollar for dollar. We also have some really fun gifts for everyone who makes a donation. So if you haven't pitched in yet, please press pause and go to selfevidentshow.com supporters. It takes just a few minutes and it really makes all the difference in the world. Also, one of the conversations we're bringing you today is a pretty explicit discussion about adult entertainment, including jokes about sex and swearing. It's also a lot of fun, but if that's not something you want to hear right now, you should pause at around 14 minutes, then fast forward to around 31 minutes to finish the episode. Thanks for listening. So I was just hanging out with my partner and a friend of ours, and they were kind of having a jam session. So just like playing songs on their guitars and like piano and whatever um, in our living room. That's Daphne Chen. She's an audio producer, one of our listeners, and like me, she's Taiwanese-American. And they're kind of like, oh, like, what song should we play next? And I was like, play Say Your Name by Destiny's Child, because that's like a great song, always. And so they were listening to it just to, like, refresh themselves, and then started playing the next song on that album. And I just kind of froze immediately, because I totally recognized the beginning notes of that song, but it was not a version that I'd ever heard before. That's one of my favorite early Destiny Child oh songs. Oh my gosh, Kathy. Brown Eyes. <laughs> Kathy, Remember if we the were... first day. <laughs> if we were friends, you could have saved me so much trauma <laughs> because this is the exact Okay, you know that now. I wrote. <laughs> okay. So if you didn't recognize it, that song, Brown Eyes, is by the one and only American R&B group, Destiny's Child. And Daphne was shocked when the song came on because she grew up listening to a cover version of Brown Eyes by a Taiwanese pop group called S.H.E. I just completely froze. I was, I like panicked. I was like, what is this? Stop this immediately. Like, what's happening? And just like sat there listening to it and realized <laughs> the exact same. Was like, what's the matter? Yeah, they were, they were both like looking at me like, are you okay? And I was like trying to explain. I was You're like, not okay. S-H-E, there's this song. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is not making any sense. Yeah, I just, oh. I had no idea that it was a cover. And I was like, you do not understand. Like, this is a song that I listened to falling asleep. Like, what? Like, it's in Chinese. I don't know why this version's not, it's in English. <laughs> I don't know why Beyonce is singing it, like, doesn't make sense. It was like a glitch in the matrix for me where I was just like, should mm-hmm. I be seeing this? Like, what does this mean? And yeah, so then basically I just tapped out of whatever they were doing for the rest of the night and just got to Googling and just like going down this huge rabbit hole of like, What's real? What's not? Which are cover songs? Which are originals? Uh. Okay, so this is Always On My Mind by S.H.E. And this is Read My Mind, the original by Sweetbox. Now here's Watch Me Shine by S.H.E. 
And this is Watch Me Shine, the original by Joanna Pasiti. And here they are together. It's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it does kind of feel like it just sums up my experience in some ways of what I've felt as being Asian American or being Taiwanese. Like it is this push and pull between like what you know and what you don't know and like also what you connect with and what you can't. Yeah. And the songs really sound so similar. Have you heard SAG before? Like, were you familiar I, with this? No, okay, I was. I never really heard of it. Gotcha. Maybe gotcha. like sort of in the periphery of of my consciousness when I was in Taiwan <laughs> right, for a little while. Right. But yeah, no. Oh my god! It's like you're kind of like the mirror of me. Then I feel like your experience of this song is probably <laughs> exactly what I felt like a few years ago <laughs> when my bubble burst. This is Self-Evident, where we tell Asian America stories to go beyond being seen. I'm your host, Kathy Arway. Today, we're sharing three conversations about the need to see someone, to hear someone, even to idolize someone who resembles you, and show some of the limitations of what pop culture can do to meet that need. We'll hear what it's like to meet one of your idols and talk about real life. You should see my notes app on my phone. <laughs> I'm just laying in bed till three in the morning, coming up with stupid things to caption my posts with. What are some of the best captions? May I pull up my app? <laughs> please do. Please do. And explore how it feels to see the more complicated truth behind the movies you grew up believing you had to hold on to no matter what. Bollywood is a very clever way to impart or disseminate a certain kind of sensibility. Rich, upper caste, diaspora, thin, for women, light-skinned, following a certain Hindu tradition, which is now an export all over the world. But now, back to Daphne Chen. A while back, Daphne reached out to us with this story about the moment she realized that all of her favorite, supposedly very Taiwanese and Chinese language songs by SHE were actually just covers of American songs. When I called her, we started digging into why she had so many feelings wrapped up in this music and in the idea of SHE in the first place. Daphne told me about growing up in Hudson, a mostly white Ohio suburb, where her grandparents and parents settled when they immigrated to the U.S. A lot of people, you know, just assume I'm from California. It's like that old cliche. <sighs> but no, we ended up in Ohio. So I guess growing up, it was like that classic sort of second generation immigrant struggle of like, what does my culture mean to me? What does my race mean? At the same time that, like, everyone around me was seeing my race very clearly, to them, it was a really important aspect of myself. And to me, I hadn't really figured out yet. One of my aunts would visit every few years. And when I was pretty young, I can't remember how young. It was probably middle school or maybe elementary school. She brought over this CD collection what do you i don't even know what to call them anymore it's like so uh, a case was of it like CDs. a box set it was a box set. okay yes, thank okay you. cool thank you oh, <laughs> yeah she brought this box set of this band that was just kind of like taking off in taiwan at the time and it was called s-h-e 
And I just became obsessed with this album. <laughs> and like me and my sister and my mom would just like play it on repeat. I listened to it before bed like every night. I just like be- latched onto these songs essentially. And I wow. think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's major obsession. devotion, like bedtime wow. lullaby. Yes. Yeah. I had like the CD player, big Walkman type thing that mm-hmm. I would just <laughs> play. Mm-hmm. Tuck under the sheets. Exactly. <laughs> I think for me, like I felt very much like I love this album so much. Like this is proof that I am Taiwanese in this weird, Aww. you know, kid logic of like, I can speak Mandarin. I can not really speak Taiwanese. I can't read or write. Like, I'm surrounded by people who don't really look like me. I don't know anything about the culture. Like, I don't know, you know, who the hottest artists are, who the hottest, like, actors are, whatever. But then this album came, and I was like, oh, well, if I like this, like, this must be proof of something Mm -hmm. in me. Which is probably why I freaked out so much a few years ago when I just like happened to hear the Destiny's Child wow. original all these years when I was thinking of myself as Asian American, like, and this was my proof. It's like, if this isn't actually proof, then then mm. what does that mean? Which is not the way that culture works or identity works, you know, but <laughs> I guess in my mindset where, mm-hmm. where I yeah. kind of internalized that idea, that's where I ended up that fateful night did you have like any experiences with bands or music or other things you know that do you feel like yeah I mean I feel like my experience was a little different but I also had like this band that I really just latched on to when I was about 13 14 it was like the summer before I was a freshman in high school Mm -hmm. so there's a CD lying around and it was by a band called Chibo Mato and the album was called Viva La Woman. It's an Italian name, but it's this duo of these two Japanese women who were in New York City and like making these funky, groovy beats and sort of <laughs> like the, you just have to hear it. I, was, <laughs> I just can't. I would love to hear it. <laughs> oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Okay. This is your first time hearing Chibomato? Yes, it is my first time. Okay. And then the other songs, they're like screaming like a little bit. And other songs are like super chill. It was idiosyncratic. It was very special. Even, you know, in the world of like avant-garde music for the time, it was like really out there. And I just, I just fell in love. And also, all the songs are like about food. <laughs> like that one is called chicken, Know Your Chicken. Yeah. There's a song about beef jerky. There's like a song That's about white wow. pepper ice cream was <laughs> one that I really liked. So everything about this band just like really spoke to me because like mm-hmm. around this age, I was like starting to realize that I was not like your typical sort of goody, two shoe, like straight laced straight A's <laughs> getting Asian American kid, which my parents right. would have liked. <laughs> they didn't get that. And I was instead like smoking weed and like, I don't know, <laughs> just like piercing my nose right, and stuff like right. that. And <laughs> and I just I had never seen anything that involved Asian Americans in this mm-hmm. like context, which I thought was like super subversive. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I thought that was just so cool. Breaking of the box kind of thing yeah yeah I mean like all the role models that I could see in pop culture were like folks like Michelle Kwan or something like that just like really kind of like I don't know perfect or something (laughs) 
Yeah, no, no. I feel and that, right? does it take you back listening to it now of like that oh my headspace? God, yeah. Of... Someone once told me that like the music that you become really attached to at this age, like your early adolescence, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. has this like outsized effect on you. Mm. And then like it always stays with you in a really lasting way. Right, and I definitely right. feel that's the case for this. Yeah, no, totally. I feel like that rings true for me right yeah Yeah, exactly yeah totally who knows what it might have been like if I had found S-H-E or I don't know something else totally (laughs) I have to say I feel like it really connected me as like it made me feel that sort of Asian American-ness in Mm. me because like I knew that I was drawn to them on a really primal level because they were Asian Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was just like Asian Americans can break rules and like swear (laughs) and like yell about food and (laughs) and that's that's like I had never like kind of seen an example of that definitely I think like when you were talking about if I had known about SHU or heard of that like every little thing that was Taiwanese you kind of had to like latch on to it and like prove you are or prove you aren't in relationship to the stereotype of what people expect from you because you are Asian American. At least for me with this band in particular, like it still goes back to the feeling like you need these outward signs of proof. In watching the DVDs of SHE and watching, you know, people in Taiwan just being themselves, they weren't worried about, you know, being a good Asian, being a bad Asian, proving they were Asian or not. They were also just, you know, being people and I feel like maybe Uh there was something in that freedom too that was like to young me very appealing I loved hearing this story and digging up these unexpected musical teen idols for Daphne the fact that SHE wasn't part of American media but was playing American songs that let us focus more on where this need to hear an Asian voice period comes from and how it became so specific and so personal for both of us. I also got some of that same feeling when I was chatting with our intern, Alex Chun. And so I'm going to pass the mic over to him now. Hi, Alex. Hey, Kathy. So you actually recently met one of your idols. Is that right? Yeah. So last spring, I spent a lot of time thinking about how stereotypes have really big impacts on what queer Asian men experience specifically in their sex lives. Huh. So naturally, as one does during their second year at college, locked away during a (laughs) pandemic. Right. So I ended up researching gay porn. Okay. And here's the thing. I know queer folks are more visible in media today, maybe more than ever. But the thing that really influenced my self-image in a deep way, and I'm sure still affects young people today, is pornography. Yeah. I'm sure for someone who's maybe, you know, just even realizing that they're queer, what kind of porn stars they see just on their phones in the privacy of their bedroom, that could have a much bigger effect than, say, whether Marvel has another Asian superhero, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And, well, I don't watch a ton of straight porn, but I'm sure you know how unrealistic it can be. That's why I was really excited to chat with Cody Sea. He's a queer Asian-American OnlyFans creator in his late 20s. And for those who don't know, OnlyFans is a website where creators can upload videos and photos and messages to their own private audience of subscribers. Yup, and OnlyFans content is usually pretty sexual. So I was curious about Cody's experiences just 
across the board, like porn, dating, life, love. But I specifically wanted to know how he experienced what feels like a pattern of queer Asian men being expected to bottom during sex. Because I would notice that he would release a video where he was topping, and sometimes he'd get negative, even racist comments from random people online. Um, and sorry to interrupt, but can you just explain what topping or bottoming means in case folks don't know? So in this particular conversation, we use the terms bottoming and topping to talk about two queer men having sex. A bottom is usually the partner who is penetrated, and the top is usually the one who penetrates. Okay. And then some people identify as verse, short for versatile, meaning that they're happy to do either. But as helpful and simple as these labels may appear to be, I think sex and intimacy, especially for queer folks, is really defined by the people who are creating that intimacy and where we learn how to do that. So when I called Cody, we started there with the first time he saw porn. I was seven and I was just bored and my family was not home and the computer was open and I looked up the A-teens naked. Why? I don't know. <laughs> the A-teens? They were this like pop group from the late 90s. Sure. Anyways, it was just a barrage of boobs and butts <laughs> on the computer and no 18, so I was disappointed. I'm curious, how was your day-to-day -day life different after finding porn? Yeah, it became almost habitual, where like every night I'd be like, okay, I'm going to watch an episode of Death Note or whatever. And I'm like, okay, time for sleep. I need to beat my meat. <laughs> and <laughs> so I would just like, I would start off looking at straight porn too, and I would find myself focusing more on the guys. And then if I felt really daring, I would look at man-on-man -man porn. And I'd be like, oh, that was weird, but it doesn't mean anything. Haha. <laughs> so what happened next? Well, from there, my parents took the computer out of the living room. Did they take the computer because they knew you were looking at porn? Oh, for sure. They're like, um, what did we raise? Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> How did they find out? And did they ever talk to you about that? They didn't, but sometimes you just know. And I have a feeling like this was before I was even aware that you could look up search history, but oh, it was there. <laughs> And it wasn't until high school that I was able to get my own laptop for school. And from there, I just started looking up anything and everything I could consume. Did you see like any Asian men in porn at the time or specifically queer Asian men? Nope. That was the big thing. It was only these like cornbread white boys with like the deepest blue eyes and the blondest of hair. And nary an Asian man in sight, or a person of color, really. I, I definitely relate to your story. Like, I have always felt very comfortable with myself and my identity, but mm -hmm. I always, like, haven't felt super comfortable in my hometown, more so just because of other people, right? And right. porn, for me, was really interesting because, similar to you, I think, like, it was the first way that I was really able to see two gay men like interact in mm -hmm. in a way that like I understood to be intimate at the time. And so that was really formative because it basically allowed me to like imagine a future for myself. But because I also never saw any gay Asian men, I had such a difficult time imagining myself like as a gay Asian adult, if that makes sense. Like yeah. I, I almost always pictured myself like as a gay white man or just like as a grown Korean straight man. 
I'm wondering if you had a similar experience to this. Yeah, actually. And like the very few times that I would stumble upon Asian men in porn, it would be very niche and extremely exoticized. Like Asian bottom gets cream pied by big black right. cock or whatever. And it's like, oh my God. Okay, cool. So we're just reduced to these objects of sexual desire as opposed to being people that are capable or deserving of intimacy and love. Was it important to find a relatable sex symbol at the time? At the time, no. But looking back, I'm realizing how important it would have been if I did find someone like that because it truly affected my confidence for so long. And I would also act in bad faith too whenever I would go out and just be like, oh, he's racist. That's why he's not into me. Right. As opposed to being like, oh, maybe he's not into you because you look grouchy <laughs> and your brow is furrowed because you automatically assume this guy is racist. I, I definitely relate to that. I just found this world, right, that I didn't know existed and felt very illicit and secretive and very exciting. But I like when I first began dating or interacting with other people, predominantly white men in my hometown, I grew up like in a suburb in the Midwest did not take long for me to realize that many people, specifically non-Asian people, like expected me to bottom or like I would get messages on like Tinder or Grindr from like usually older white guys and they would make a comment about my race or like what they wanted to like <laughs> yeah. uh, do to These, me. like rice queens that <laughs> no, are just like, yes, oh. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I mean, I say that it was an expectation that other people had put on me, but I think I also put it on myself to an extent in terms of like when I was dating some of my first few boyfriends who were white, I often wondered like if I was compromising a part of myself for them or I don't know. Or It's like it's just, this weird like paradoxical, you find this like paradoxical power in oppression almost. Yeah. And for the longest time, too, I would just, like, play into these desires and stereotypes that these men would place on me. And I guess I would just be very excited because they were giving me any sort of attention. Right. Because I just had such low self-worth and I didn't see myself as being, you know, this, like, paragon of sexual desire, especially being an Asian man. You know, you feel like you hold the power, but at the same time, you're playing into these roles of submission, where I would just automatically assume bottom position, like, all right. Do you think you would have had a different mentality or a different expectations in those early dating experiences if you had seen different kinds of Asian men in porn? I think so. I would have been able to be more confident in myself. Or it also would have set an example for other people that aren't Asian and being like, oh, yeah, like... Asian guys, they're viable sex partners. Let me tell you, you see that so-and-so? He's so hot. Like, it would help the cause a lot. <laughs> it also turned me off to other Asians because I'm, it's like, I'm a bottom because everyone assumes that I'm a bottom. And then also, oh, I'm not really into other Asians because other Asians are only bottoms. Mm. So it's this never-ending cycle. When you've talked in the past, some mm -hmm. fans have responded negatively and have expressed like criticism or just the expectation that they want you to bottom because you're Asian. Yeah. Whenever I post a clip of me topping or saying like, oh, you know, started from the bottom, now we verse, I'll get <laughs> responses like, what are you doing on top? Or Asian guys are usually the bottom. Like, what are you doing? 
or just like, okay, Mary, get back on bottom, things like that. Oh my gosh. It's funny, even in 2020, people are out here, you know, just being racist in front of God and everybody, I guess, and just assuming (laughs) like we are all submissive and it's very tiring. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Cody. I'm still not over. Started from the bottom. Now we first. Yeah. <laughs> when did you come up with that? You should see my notes app on my phone. <laughs> I'm just laying in bed till three in the morning, coming up with stupid things to caption my posts with. What so, are some of the best captions? May I pull up my app? <laughs> Please do. Please do. Yeah. Here's a fun note. Butt plug phone pop socket. <laughs> Oh, just left the dentist's office and I'm realizing I need more fingers in my mouth. (laughs) Why did I? He sounded like a mogwai when he sucked my dick. (laughs) Oh my God, here's a gold one. Anyone else hating the ass of bread? Yeah, me too. That's why I eat man ass. These are just (laughs) notes of a madman, I guess. That's awesome. Like... (laughs) I am a person who will randomly have like existential crises at like 3 a.m. And my notes app is suddenly my best friend. And then like I will reread my thought dump at, in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was yeah. really going through it. Yeah. So we've talked so much about how it's important to like see Asian men talking in porn and like how it's been formative in a way, seeing it or not seeing it as well. Mm-hmm. I feel it raises some questions about why we feel topping is something to even value, like as men or like as a masculine performance. Does that kind of binary feel limiting at times, even if it's liberating? Yeah, in a way, because it just kind of furthers the uh, heteronormative standard, I guess, where people see like, oh, penetration, like the phallic. It's so masculine and like, oh, yeah, if you're being dominant, then you have to be masculine. Conversely, too, I found power in like being a power bottom. And it's like, oh, I'm going to fuck you, but with my butt. Does that make sense? Where it's like, I'm taking control. You're sitting back. Like, I don't care if you think that you're like the dom masculine top because your penis is inside me. Oh, I have the power right now. I could snap that thing off. (laughs) But I won't. (laughs) So when did the mental shift happen for you when you begin to consider that rather than a viewer, you could be a performer as well? Well, I just graduated from college a year ago. And the world was basically ending. Like we were in the middle of this (laughs) pierogi. And I wasn't sure what to do. And I had friends for the longest time be like, oh, you should do porn. You should do OnlyFans. What are you waiting for? You're so cute. You're already filming yourself having sex with people. Like I would record it as like my greatest hits album in my phone uh, for my spank bank. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it hit a point where I was like, you know what? I should just capitalize on this. And I will say that I recognize that I do have some privilege and that I'm like, I'm half white. So... I look foreign enough to them to be like, oh, yeah, he's an Asian guy, but he's got a little white in him, a little familiar. Whereas, like, you know, some of the other performers are, like, fully Asian or very Asian presenting, and they aren't receiving as many followers or subscribers or getting the praise that they rightfully deserve, truly. Right. I think a defining aspect about OnlyFans Mm -hmm. is that 
like the fans are both the viewer and the director in a way. That is so true, Bestie. Like <laughs> now that I think about that, I'm like, yeah, you're so right. Folks will send suggestions or send comments, be like, I'd like to see more Asian performers on your page. People will be like, oh my God, this is so empowering. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Even on dating apps like Grindr or Scruff, I'll get strangers just messaging me like, oh my God, you're Cody Saya. I love your work. You're so cute. And thank you so much for what you're doing for the Asian community. And I've received messages too. There's a pretty lengthy one, but I'll give you the, the Sparknotes version. Please do. Where this guy who is also a fellow queer Asian man was telling me how he wasn't really out and watching my videos and my content helped him come to terms with his sexuality and be comfortable coming out to his friends and realizing that he too has every right to be just as confident and feel just as sexy with who he is. I think you touched on something very interesting. I think that sometimes marginalized people, people who are marginalized in any way kind of have a pressure to like find resistance and and I, and of course, but I think that there is resistance in just existence and like kind of yeah. what you were saying and just like just being you and having sex and just being different and like reveling in that like mm-hmm. is an act of resistance for what people expect out of you. Yeah. There are some guys that they do like the most ridiculous stunts for their pages. Like, oh, I'm going to like hula hoop and some guys blowing me <laughs> or like weird things like that. Like they're trying the most. Yeah. And that's something I did think about too, where I'm like, oh, what do I do? Like, maybe I should do this stunt or like I should work with so-and-so. And it's like, no, like just being yourself, you know, is already so exciting for people to see. And for me, I'm like, I'm just going to have really good sex and enjoy it and show that like Asian men can have good sex and share the pleasures and joys of having sex. And I feel so weird kind of patting myself on the back or complimenting myself but you know there is like this uniqueness to me but I will also say there's a uniqueness to everyone else too like no one in the world is like you and you should revel in it have you ever thought about yourself as a young person having his computer taken away for doing porn searches and then realize that like for many queer Asians right now they might be looking for you wow that is a galaxy brain thought that I have not thought about before. Uh, I guess so. Um, But also, if you're underage, do not be looking at my porn. Thank you. But also, (laughs) if you are, I hope you feel empowered. (laughs) So... Viewers Like Us is hardly the first effort to call out public television on its record with people of color. In 2007, Latinx viewers organized to protest a Ken Burns documentary. Even when he interviews people of color for his films, he still controls the narrative, then pats himself on the back for including us at all. I'm Grace Lee, host of Viewers Like Us. We're investigating how this kind of pattern keeps happening even now. Join us wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Self-Evident. I'm Kathy Irway. The final conversation we're sharing today was actually hosted by our producer, Harsha. Hi, Harsha. Hi, Kathy. 
So when we started talking about this underlying need to see yourself in media, naturally one thing that came up was not just Hollywood, but Bollywood. Which, if folks are listening and have always thought of Bollywood as like Hindi language movies for people in India, well, it's actually a major cultural export from India to the rest of the world. Yeah, so Bollywood has a big, long history that most folks in the U.S. don't know much about. And it's actually just one of many kinds of film industries that come from India. There are so many more um, because India is so diverse. But anyway, yes, Bollywood specifically has become this kind of export good from India. And this whole conversation about pop culture idols It sort of brought up a lifelong experience of mine that I've also heard other Indian Americans and NRIs talk about. NRIs? NRI means non-resident Indians. And in the conversation I'm about to play, you'll hear us say NRI a couple times. And we're actually just referring to Indian people who reside outside of India. Okay, got it. So speaking for myself, I loved these movies growing up. I felt like it filled this sort of void that white American media left when it came to representation. But it wasn't until recently that I started to reflect on the stories and the experiences that Bollywood left out. And it brought up this bigger question for me, which is, who is Bollywood actually for? And the answer to that question has changed over the years. And you can see this in the stories and perspectives that the Bollywood film industry portrays from decade to decade. But it was the 90s that were most formative for me because that's when young Harsha was coming of age. Okay, (laughs) for sure. And during that time, this like giant blockbuster of blockbusters came out. It was called Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jayenge or DDLJ for short. Ooh, is this from the movie? Yeah, so this is like an iconic tune that I associate with DDLJ. And... DDLJ is actually now the longest running film in Indian history. Like one theater in Mumbai kept showing this movie every week from 1995 all the way until the first COVID lockdown in 2020. And people kept going? Yeah. (laughs) Even now the theaters open back up and it's actually showing DDLJ again. The thing is, though, a lot of the movie isn't even set in India. It's about two NRIs who fall in love while they're on vacation in Europe. And then, of course, have to fight to stay together against their parents' will. And I feel like my generation of Indian American and even South Asian American friends in general grew up on these plot lines. And we really started to see the shift in the business model for big Bollywood films away from India itself and more towards people in the diaspora, especially because at the time, people in the diaspora were thought to be wealthier. But since so many more knowledgeable people have written about this, I wanted to chat with a couple of them. And by the way, if you're not familiar with Bollywood, we're going to reference DDLJ, which now you at least know the basics of, and a couple other big movies from this post-90s global Bollywood era. One is called Kabhi Kushi Kabhi Gum, which is part romance, part family drama. Another film you'll hear about is Lagan, which is kind of a period sports movie that we'll get more into. So first, I called up Yashika Dutt, She's a writer and journalist who wrote a book called Coming Out as Dalit. I belong to a marginalized caste from India. 
the most untouchable caste, if that's one way to put it, formerly untouchable caste, the manual scavenging caste. A lot of the work that I do currently revolves around that. And we connected with Mitali Desai, a writer and communications assistant. She recently wrote a really great piece for Kajal magazine called Consuming Diaspora, which had this big eye-grabbing quote saying, representation doesn't necessarily equal liberation. I'm from a mixed Indian and Jewish background. So something I think a lot about is sort of the intersection of those identities and building solidarity across and through identity. I kind of wanted to get into both of your experiences growing up. Mithali, I know you grew up here and you've mentioned in your writing that your experiences were really shaped by by growing up in a mixed family and like your connections to India coming through your grandparents. But I'm curious, as you were growing up, did you feel this need to seek out visuals or stories that felt like they represented you? And if so, where did you look for that? So I grew up in a very white community in rural Maine that was sort of liberal-ish, but there were definitely like moments in my early childhood that I felt very distinctly like othered without necessarily having the words for that. I grew up very close with my grandparents and on my dad's side, and I grew up hearing all of these stories about India, about their resistance to British colonial rule. And all of those stories really resonated. And I think I felt very much like I identified with the Indian side of my heritage, with India as this place that I'd never been to. And also with sort of just a feeling of outsiderness, which in retrospect, I think was justifiable considering the context I grew up in. But I also think that there's almost this like self-exotification that happens so I loved like pretending to be Princess Jasmine from Aladdin or kind of finding these characters that were from somewhere else. And it didn't even need to be from India, but just finding these outsider characters, these immigrant characters and sort of latching on a little bit to that sort of shared general identity, even though, you know, I was someone who was born in the States, growing up in the States, who really hadn't experienced anything like that. It was almost also a survival mechanism, sort of emotionally, where when I was younger, I wasn't going to be Cinderella. So I think I was always sort of looking to identify with the person or the people who are sort of the odd ones out, like this amateurish way of Mm. trying to create connection in a place where I I wasn't really connected to a community of people who had similar experiences. I know, Yashika, you grew up in India. You came here later as an immigrant, but you mentioned that um, growing up Dalit was extraordinarily formative. Tell me a little bit about like, like the media you consumed and if you felt like this need to seek out stories of people who seemed like you and, and where did you turn for that? That's such an interesting question, Harsha, because this is a question that is only posed to people who belong to the diaspora, who grew up with severe lack of representation or not seeing themselves represented on screen and, and you know television, books, literature, perhaps. As a Dalit person growing up in India, for me personally, that question did not carry enough charge because my entire energy 
since I was extremely young, was focused on hiding who I was. And it was with assimilating with the dominant group, passing as an upper caste person. I did not have the faculty or the understanding to be outraged at what I was seeing and feel that I was not being represented enough. Mm. All I knew at that point was to conform and assimilate. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's something that even as I was preparing this show, I was kind of thinking about this idea of like flattening of experiences around like a an upper caste or middle caste coming to America narrative. I like really remember like at school and stuff, like not knowing English songs, but being like, oh, but I know Bollywood songs and I can see these women that are like a little bit browner and they're beautified. I was taught that like culture was something that was communicated through these these like movies or TV shows or films like I'd watch Indian soaps and they would have like all these women like fasting for Garvacha they're like there was like one Jane family on a TV soap once and it was like a huge thing because they like said the name like Mavir and like had like like a specific type of Diwali and I just remember being like oh yeah this is how I'm gonna learn like my language and my customs and I really look back on that now and think like wow that was that was so messed up and so weird. I guess what I'm getting at is with Bollywood, like what what is a way that we can even describe what it is and who it's for? There are a lot of ways to look at Bollywood. At least in India, it has represented the aspirations of people in a realistic way. Mm. Like if you look at the cinema of the 50s, those films reflected that socialist sensibility that was deeply a part of Indian culture in the 50s because we had just attained independence, these ideas of equality, fraternity, liberty, freedom from caste, freedom from religious persecution. That were the current ideals and cinema reflected that. A lot of the movies that we were were based around revolution, were based around thinking about how we relate to our society. In the 90s, I would say, with DDLJ, that is when it started this whole pivot towards looking at the diaspora, looking at the NRI audience, because people understood that, you know, a lot of people had moved to the U.S., moved to the U.K. in the 80s and the 90s. And then, you know, they had the money. Indians were very poor at that time. So where is the money coming from? Where is the money for concerts coming from the concerts and the tours and the award functions so that's the whole industry pivoted there so if you look at that there is a lot of cinema that I guess stemmed from a need of representation but it also became a kind of aspirational value for the Indians who were living in India because we didn't live in those kind of houses or consume that kind of fashion at that time at least. It's interesting because I feel like so much of the way you interact with Indian culture, whatever that means to you in the States, I feel like it. a lot of it often depends on when you came here and under what circumstances. My grandparents came 50 years ago. And when my dad and my aunt were growing up, there wasn't a Bhangra dance team. No one was taking like Bharatanatyam classes. There weren't you know, the same sort of almost like external rituals around Indianness. And so much of it was about assimilation. It was, you know, my grandparents got a Christmas tree when they came to the States. They're both Hindu. 
And they were like, well, we're in America and this is what they do here. And this is our Christmas tree with our like little Ganesha ornaments on it. In the 80s, right, when there's this bigger wave of immigration, there's kind of more opportunity to find community in a different way. Like people who were who were raised under those circumstances where there was this sort of pressure to stay Indian in America. Like you've come here now, you have to hold on so tight so you don't lose it. And then I think from there you get more sort of extracurriculars around being Indian almost. The Bollywood movies are sort of, I think in some ways, a little bit of an extension of that, of this feeling of holding on to something and not losing a connection, mm-hmm. whether it's Bollywood, whether it's certain foods or certain products or henna or, you know, what you wear to Diwali every year with your family and kind of finding these objects and these symbols and looking, almost looking at them to guide what it actually means to be Indian in America. For me, the example I always think about is food because, I mean, my family is very food centric. (laughs) There's just a lot of eating every time we see each other. I was sort of, I got to this point of being like, all I'm doing is eating. I was also just sort of thinking about who I was as a consumer in general and, and feeling like I wanted to act more instead of sort of take things in. I guess this was last year now with the farmers' protests in India that sort of really like collided those ideas, right? That the food that we eat here that is so symbolic and reminiscent of home and representative of this bigger cultural identity, that comes from somewhere. And there are people who get it here to us and that's political and that has to do with human rights and it has to do with identity and it has to do everything with globalization, instead of just thinking about food as like, oh, I'm passively consuming this thing, I started thinking about it more politically when those protests were and still are happening, just thinking more about like how, who makes it so that I can have these connections, really. I need to add something to that because what Natalie said, that was wonderful and it sparked this train of thought Mm -hmm. that, you know, this idea that we seek representation through what we see on screen, Mm -hmm. through cinema, through television, is a deeply capitalist import. And I can say that because I sort of gained consciousness in the 90s. And India at that time was just opening its markets to hyper-capitalism that we see back home now. I had family members and my mom who would be very excited to get the same haircut as Bollywood actresses and get the same salwar kameez <laughs> as, you know, what people wearing on screen. But we didn't have to realize our identities through those yeah. figures that we saw on screen. Now, of course, that is completely changed now in 2021 in India. Everybody wow. needs to see themselves realize the vision of what they're watching on screen. So I just wanted to make that clear that, you know, how we want to realize ourselves through television and what we, that this culture of being on TV, being marketable, is a deeply capitalist import. Kabi Kushi Kabi Gum, half of that movie is set in London. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of that, Bollywood (laughs) is a very clever way to impart or disseminate a certain kind of sensibility. Rich, Upper caste, diaspora, thin, 
for women, light-skinned, right. following a certain Hindu tradition. There is a whole song about Karva Chauth in K3G. Yes. You know, you talk about Karva Chauth. <laughs> or, or Hum Dil De Chuke Sanam has a whole Karva Chauth song. You know, yeah. if you look at the history of Karva Chauth in India, it really wasn't an important festival before Bollywood made it. Yeah. So I'm just saying that culture in Bollywood has shaped sensibilities always, and it is now being used to also perpetuate a fascist sensibility, mm. a sensibility that is very majoritarianism mm. led, you know, pro-Hindu. You know, look at the cinema that's coming out that's yeah. being championed by the right-wing forces. Mm -hmm. We have to be critical, especially the diaspora, because they do have financial power. Right. They do have, you know, cultural power and they have to ex exercise that sensibly. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Kabhi Kushi Kabhi Gum because that was like the Bollywood movie to me. That like was my Bollywood experience. We watched it so many times when I was a kid and I was really young and I remember just loving it. I was like, love is when you have seven outfit changes <laughs> and in one song and you're on a mountain and then you're in pyramids and then you're in the ocean and if somebody doesn't like chase a train through a flower field for you, then they clearly aren't that into you. So it was formative in that way. But I think like it was so <laughs> beloved to me because it's so much fun, like those big dance scenes and the music. And I thought those women were so beautiful to the point that I like I wished that I looked like a Bollywood actress kind of from the other way. I wish I looked more Indian. I wish I looked like that. Right. Even as now I can sort of be so much more critical of these films, of the contexts in which they're created and what they represent, especially like in India's political climate today, there's still this part of me that I think feels a little romantic about them. There's this sort of over-the-topness, there's like kind of optimism of like a big musical number, a big dance number mm -hmm. that it is charming. Like it's a seductive type of right. medium and I think even as critical as I am now it's still hard to sort of like let go of the fun of that too. No, I really like what you said Natali because I don't think the idea is to not like what we like I mean ultimately mm -hmm. especially for the diaspora this is a representation of the diaspora Kalvona who is set right. in Queens New York you know, so people are mm -hmm. looking at themselves and saying, this is me. And, you know, I like Bollywood movies. My favorite Bollywood movie is Mr. India oh. which is from the 80s. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because it was on TV all the time <laughs> when I was young. And it's just a truly fascinating <laughs> movie. And ultimately, they're created as an escape. <laughs> right. They're created right. by the producers and the directors do give an escape to the people. In fact, this is something that's very commonly discussed in interviews where directors have gone on record, maybe not anymore, but definitely the 90s when they said, listen, this public is poor. This public is yeah. marginalized. This public is oppressed. There is extreme income inequality in India. People don't have jobs. So let this Bollywood fantasy be the escape that they need. Uh. We have to appreciate that there is something extremely charming, mm -hmm. extremely lovable about seeing this tradition that belongs to mm. Indians, which is now an export all over the world. But at the same time, that needs to also be held accountable. We 
hold things accountable right. that we love. And that's, I think when people criticize these ideas, I, I feel that a lot of it comes from a place of love. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it's sort of an interesting thing to think about like what could Bollywood look like? I think that the film industry of a place is sort of a mirror into the power dynamics of that place and, and globally too. But it's I think it's just interesting to think about what media we deserve, that we all deserve across caste, across faith, across like regions in the country. And, and just thinking about how do we take this sort of like behemoth of the industry and really enact like some change when um, there's so much money and there's so much power and it's sort of been like fossilized into this right. into this big industry. Yeah. And maybe it means that we go outside of the industry too. And it's about promoting alternative ways to to tell these stories too. And I think that, you know, executives kind of feel like they're under pressure a little bit. Like they're like, okay, we have to get mm-hmm. woke overnight now. And I think it's interesting, like the way that's happened, telling these stories about people, but not actually casting people who have those right. identities or experiences in the movies. There's this short film, I forget who it's by, but it's it's called, I think, The Discreet Lives of Savarnas. Yashika, have you seen it? Not yet. I watched it pretty recently, and it's sort of this like dark comedy about three young filmmakers. They're making a movie, and they have a character who's Dalit in it, and they can't find an actor. And they can't find an actor, and they can't find an actor because they're looking for someone who you know, the listing is, quote, looks like their Dalit. And mm-hmm. it's sort of this, like, comedy of errors of people who are so blind to their own privilege that they, they just can't figure out, like, why won't this actor mysteriously appear who will fulfill our need of being um. a token for this identity without actually being from this identity? And then they actually do, I think at the end they meet someone who is Dalit, but they're, like, so shocked because she's beautiful and they're like well you're too pretty for the role i've talked about this a little bit in my book Mm. and earlier bollywood characters who were dalit were called dukhi and dukhi in hindi means sad Mm. and they didn't even afford Mm. them the grace and integrity of a name that could be their own they just were defined by their state their existence which according to the upper caste filmmakers was perpetually sad, Mm. not as victims of Mm. systemic casteism, but sad. And then you have Lagan, one of the most beloved movies in India and by the diaspora, because it made it all the way to the Oscars in the foreign film category, Mm. right? Lagan is about a cricket match between the British government and the Indians. It is in a pre-colonial era. And the character that is the lower caste quote-unquote character is called Kachra, oh, yeah, yeah. which means rubbish, which means garbage, you know? And it's the same trope that he has to be magical for him to be accepted. Right. And the pivotal ball is thrown by so-called Kachra. And, you know, the narrative the director tried to spin was that we need these talented Dalits to really make us who we are. But really, I mean, Dalits don't need to be talented exactly. to be human. Mm. We just are. Yeah. We don't need that kind of superhumanity to qualify mm. our equality. I would, you know, like to draw attention, however, to Dalit filmmakers yeah. and Dalit directors who have become 
so prominent in the past five, six years, whether it's Paranjit. Mm. And it was Paranjit's production company that made available the discrete charm of Savarnas mm. for streaming. It's called Neelam Productions. Leave it to Dalit filmmakers. Right. To, to do that representation. Because if, if yeah. you do it, do it well. Do it respectfully. Yeah. Or don't. Like we really have like unpacked the power of movies and the power of media and like how we related to these titles growing up. It's been great to talk with you both because I feel like we're all just like movie lovers. What would you say that this role of stories and like how powerful they can be shows us about our needs as people and and where else can we fill those needs if it isn't going to always be media? I don't remember who said this, but there's this idea that the fact that we dream and that's somewhat universal speaks to a universal need for stories. There is something that is both empowering and like honors your agency as as a person about creating stories. And there is also something that is so powerful about kind of like the stillness and smallness of yourself mm-hmm. when you are looking or reading or absorbing someone else's story. That power, I think, is itself amoral because we have stories and narratives that lead us to division and the fascism we're seeing now. Like, that's all narrative. But I think that also storytelling is the most powerful way for us to understand ourselves, to understand each other, to sort of give space to create these connections. It's very well said, Natalia. I couldn't agree more. Stories also make us understand that there are people who don't necessarily share our exact experiences, but we still are able to relate to them. And on the other hand, Mm. there are people who have never seen themselves represented Mm. and that those stories let them know that there are others like them out there that they're not alone in going Mm. through this experience, especially when it pertains to caste. Experiences of of shame, of of trauma, of fear, of humiliation, of abuse and discrimination. When those stories are put out there in a respectful manner, then you you create greater solidarity. Then you create greater comfort and ease for people who exist Mm. at the margins. All of us, especially those who are a part of the diaspora now, need to understand that we have to engage with Indian cinema in a critical way. We cannot be content with representation alone. This episode was produced by Julia Shu, Alex Chun, and Harsha Nahata. We were edited by James Boo and Julia Shu. Fact-checking by Harsha Nahata and Alex Chun. Sound mixed by Timothy Luli. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. And our theme music is by Dorian Love. Self-Evident is a Studio to Be production. Our executive producer is Ken Akeda. This episode was made with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creator Program. And of course, our listener community. More resources and a transcript of this episode are available at selfevidentshow.com. I'm Kathy Irway. Let's talk soon. Until then, keep sharing Asian America's stories.
All right, folks, one more time, we've got some beautiful gifts featuring original artwork from Robert Lou Trujillo. For anyone who donates to our annual listener drive, every dollar you give will be matched until the end of 2021. So go to selfevidentshow.com slash supporters right now to double your impact and help us pay our OnlyFans. I mean, help us uh, tell Asian America's story. See you later.